Welcome to Agnes, the late antique, medieval, and Byzantine podcast. I'm Glenn McDorman, and today I'm talking to Professor Jay Deal about ways of understanding the written word at Durham Priory in the early 12th century. Professor Deal earned his PhD from New York University and is now Associate Professor of History at Long Island University in New York. His article, The Saint, the Voice, and the Author, Imagining Textual Authority and Personal Presence at Durham Priory, was published in the journal Viator in 2016. Professor Deal, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So I thought we might start by situating your article. And so my first question is this. Can you tell us a little bit about Durham Priory? Yeah, so Durham Priory is a, uh, a monastic priory in the north of England, in Northumbria. It, it traces its full history back to the island of Lindisfarne, to the monastic community on Lindisfarne, where its most famous abbot and later bishop of Lindisfarne, Cuthbert, flourishes. They're forced to move putatively due to Viking raids, and they spend quite a lot of time wandering during the sort of 9th and 10th centuries before finally settling at Durham Priory, apparently because of a miracle involving the relics of Cuthbert that were being toted around by the monks who refused the relics themselves refused to be carried across the ocean and marked out a particular place that it wanted to remain at rest. Um, and that became the monastic priory at Durham eventually. Like a lot of these early religious communities, it, it's a little hard to parse whether they're monks or clerics or, or exactly, or even if those terms are really valid for understanding them, but they are a religious community that settles in the north of England in the mid mid ninth into the tenth centuries. So you mentioned Cuthbert, and he's going to become an important person in the article. So why don't we talk about who Cuthbert is right now? So from the perspective of the article, which is set in the twelfth century, Cuthbert um, is the the patron saint of the community at Durham. He's a historical figure on Lindisfarne himself, an abbot who is renowned for his piety, for his asceticism, for living as a hermit for a while on the Farne Island, and by the time of the 12th century is being venerated as one of, you know, the two or three most important saints in England and really becomes the sort of the central point of corporate identity for this monastic community at Durham. They possess his relics. They write hagiographies or lives about him. They write miracle collections about him, all as part of an attempt to build up their prestige and build up their own identity as a community. And when did Cuthbert live? Uh, so he's he's a 7th century figure. Uh, the 600s dies in 687, I think, is the normal dating. All right, well, let's, let's move on to the dates of your study then. Why is the period between 1080 and 1150 so significant? So a, a lot happens at Durham during that stretch of time. In England in general, there is a sort of sweeping phenomenon usually known as the English Benedictine Reform, whereby a lot of religious communities are brought into stricter observance of the Benedictine rule, which is supposed to be the is the most prestigious, most famous rule for how monastic communities are supposed to live. Durham kind of stayed outside of that early period of English Benedictine reform. After the conquest in 1066 by the Normans, eventually Norman power sort of stretches northward um, and brings Northumbria into its circuit. And during that period, a figure named William of St. Calais is appointed bishop of Durham and initiates a Benedictine reform there, whereby supposedly he expels whoever was there beforehand. They're described as kind of clerks no longer living a true religious life, and they are replaced with a Benedictine community brought from one of Bede's original communities, from Jarrow. And so this moment 
this Benedictine reform, and I, I use the word a little hesitantly. Um, no, no one is exactly sure how much change is involved in this kind of moment of reform, but it does at least mark the beginning of a pretty big period of cultural revival at Durham. That involves the construction of a new cathedral, um, the creation of a new shrine for Cuthbert, for the relics of Cuthbert, for the translation of Cuthbert's relics into that new shrine. And for my purposes also um, is a moment where the scriptorium kind of kicks into high gear and manuscripts start to be produced at a pretty substantial clip and the library and collection is built up. So these are years that witness sort of a, a multifaceted period of cultural renewal, religious, artistic, material, architectural, all at Durham sort of within the same 30 or 40 year period. Well, let's get into your argument. Your article is about medieval ways of understanding the written word. And listeners, of course, have a way of understanding the written word, right? We we know what it means to get an email or to read a book or even a sign. But this is not the only way that humans can or have uh, to understand writing. Can you tell us a little about the theory of understanding the written word and maybe start with uh, with our own society, just so we can we can ground listeners in sort of the, the, this theory? I think there's two answers to that question, or there's two ways of coming about the answer to that question. One answer is to think about literacy and sort of what we mean by literacy and how to situate literacy within society. When literacy first became a major topic of study, there was an approach to it that was very deterministic, we might say, that there was an assumption that there was a big gulf between oral and literate societies, and that the emergence of literacy had sort of clear, almost mechanistic effects on a society, um, that it determined certain ways of thought, that you moved from mythology to history, that you would move uh, into more logical modes of thought, and, and all these things that we sort of understand by modern literate ways of thinking. More recently, a, a, a sort of complex body of thought, usually termed the new literacy studies, has really interrogated this idea of literacy as a kind of deterministic thing and placed much more emphasis on the idea of multiple literacies and sort of contextually specific literacies, which is to say that literacy in the developing world in Africa is going to look fundamentally different and needs different policies than literacy in the first world, in, North, in the United States or in Europe or something like that. And so you can't simply assume a monolithic type of literacy and just try to get it everywhere, that somehow literacy is going to be emergent within particular contexts. And so this is one good way to think about writing today, is to think about sort of the different contexts it's operative in and to think about the different ways that people interact with writing and how this creates different sorts of literacy. So you mentioned email. Obviously, digital literacy is a big sort of field of studies today. Um, but you also find literacy used in a very flexible way, visual literacy, artifactual literacy, that somehow literacy has now just become a way of talking about any kind of interpretive experience with any kind of object or something like this. And this makes writing a very malleable subject where you can really think about all the different ways, you know, how is getting the same message via email, different from getting that message via a letter, you know, an old-fashioned handwritten letter or something like that, and sort of 
contextually, how are those different kinds of experiences? And that kind of leads into the second way of thinking about writing, which is as media, writing as a particular form of media. How is writing different from speaking? How is writing different from ritual? Um, how is uh, it different from images, all, all these other forms of media? And I think this is a, a good way for us in, in sort of a media-saturated world to think about exactly what writing is. How often do we encounter writing side-by-side side with images? When I was growing up reading bad fantasy novels, the answer was almost never. I, I encountered writing just as writing on a page. Now, when you think about how often you encounter writing in digital form, images are often right there with you. I mean, social media as a form of written language is huge, but you get it with video clips, you get it with all sorts of other forms of media right alongside it. So I think somehow thinking about these two subjects in tandem, literacy, in what context do you consume writing, and then in terms of media, what media is actually being used to convey information are, are a powerful way to think about kind of the, the situatedness of the written word. So then what were the competing modes of understanding the written word in the central Middle Ages? Yeah, so that's a big question. And it, you, you can break a question down like that in terms of sort of what kinds of writing were out there. We often do a very simple dichotomy between sort of manuscripts and administrative documents. So the, the latter being charters, a, a dominant form of writing in the central Middle Ages. And, and manuscript books, th those kind of overlap very often. Another way to think about it is sort of the ideologies of the written word. And there you're actually in a pretty complicated situation. On the one hand, monastic communities are all Christian and Christianity, well, monastic communities in my context are all Christian. Christianity is a religion of the book. They have a holy text, the Bible, a, a sacred text. And so in that sense, writing has a, a, a charged sacred value, almost almost magical, almost totemic in some ways. But on the other hand, this is also a culture where writing isn't necessarily the dominant way of communicating. It's still a, a world in which orality is highly prized, where personal charisma is highly prized, um, where immediacy and access to a person is highly prized. And writing in that situation, in that kind of culture, can be viewed as uh, mediatory, as distancing as something that actually takes you away from the immediacy of somebody's personal presence. And, and so the best way to put it in some ways is that a monastic community like Durham might have a very ambiguous attitude towards writing, where on the one hand, it's, it's kind of magical and kind of sacred. And on the other hand, it poses the risk of alienation and distanciation. How did the monks at Durham in the first half of the 12th century then understand the written word? And, and, and maybe also, why is that significant? Yeah, so this kind of picks up on, on that last point. One of the central things you find at Durham, when, either when you begin to deal with the actual written artifacts there or when you begin to, to read the texts they compose, the histories and the saints' lives and things like this, is that they're very invested in the idea that writing can somehow still be personal presence, that somehow when you write down somebody's thoughts or somebody's words, the text doesn't necessarily separate from that person in the way that we're accustomed to, and that when a reader reads that written text, somehow they are still getting more or less direct access 
to the author itself. So this is not necessarily an unusual idea in the Middle Ages. We often find it expressed having to do with letters and things like this, that letters carry personal presence over space and indeed over time. But we find it with a particular urgency and intensity at Durham that they are really committed to the idea that writing, even though it might look like this sort of sterile, dead form of language, it is still vivified presence of an author, of the person who originally composed the text. And so this is the dominant way of talking about writing at Durham that I found at least is as presence, as personal presence, as authorial presence, as the manifestation of somebody's or the embodiment of somebody's personality and charisma. Much of your article is about why this happens, but I I actually want to hold off on that for a few moments uh, and instead ask you what sources you use to access the scribal practices at Durham. Yeah, uh, so the answer to that is is the, the manuscripts themselves produced at Durham sort of in the late 11th, early 12th century, or in some cases produced elsewhere and then brought to Durham. It's quite a large collection. Durham has one of the the most largest and most intact manuscript collections from English English medieval monasteries um, with an excellent survival rate. We know that a a huge proportion of these manuscripts have survived. And, And so a big part of it involves going and handling these manuscripts and looking through them. For me, uh, a lot of what I'm interested in is not necessarily the texts themselves, the words on the page, but more how are these texts laid out for the reader, particularly in this article, what sort of images accompany those texts. The crux of this article, the way I sort of begin to get into this idea of the written word as presence had to do with when I started looking through all these manuscripts and discovered the preponderance of images of authors in these manuscripts that Durham scribes and scholars and artists were really focused to to the point of the exclusion of almost any other kind of imagery of putting portraits of authors at the starts of texts in their manuscripts. And again, an author portrait is a standard thing in medieval monastic manuscripts, but the, the focus at Durham is what was so unusual and what put me on um, the path to thinking about why authorship, why, why authors in these manuscripts with such focus. And I'm quite lucky that the Durham manuscripts are also really well studied by a, a, a huge range of scholars other than me. Their provenance has been carefully cataloged. Their scribal hands have been charted by paleographers, by people who study handwriting. And so I'm really building on, on an excellent range of scholarship on these Durham manuscripts that have allowed me to start to think a little bit more about the cultural significance of the ways these would have been read and used and embedded within monastic culture generally. So the significance of personal presence in textual authority in these manuscripts at Durham Priory is something that that you noticed almost accidentally while you were in uh, while you were looking at the manuscripts for another purpose. Is that is that right? Yeah, I mean, not exactly another purpose. The best way to think about it is that when I sat down to do my dissertation work, out of which this article eventually emerged, I I knew I wanted to work on the significance of the written word in monastic culture. But that was kind of all I really knew. And so I picked out some monasteries, um, not at random, but slightly more random than I should really admit to. Um, (laughs) Durham, Durham, my my 
choice of Durham grew out of the fact that I'd been working on a neighboring monastery in Yorkshire called Riveau and an, and an abbot there named Aylred who had possibly been educated at Durham. And I knew Durham had a pretty good collection of manuscripts, so I just said, yeah, Durham, I'll go look at the manuscripts and see what I see. The first time I did that, I was actually pretty lucky. They have them all on microfilm at a repository in Minnesota, the Hill Museum and Monastic Library at St. John's University. So I, I spent some time there. But then eventually, yeah, I just went to Durham. Almost all the manuscripts are still on site there in Durham Cathedral. Not not all of them. A few of them are scattered other places. And really just started paging through them to see what I would find, to see if if I looked at all the manuscripts from a single community, would there be patterns that would sort of tell me what they thought about writing in some ways? At Durham, it, it was a more clear pattern than at some of the other monasteries I've, I've looked at. You know, my big project right now is on a Belgian monastery, and the manuscripts there are interesting, but don't have the same single-minded focus that I, I saw at the Durham manuscripts. Um, and, and so, yeah, it, it was an accident in the sense that I didn't know what I was going to find in the manuscripts. I just had this idea I should go look at manuscripts and maybe I'll find something. Um, and at Durham, it, it did turn out to be a pretty happy, happy accident. Yeah, how serendipitous. <laughs> so so let's move to the, the real heart of your argument then. So why were scribes at Durham so interested in authorship and textual voice? The easy answer, in some ways the received answer that I initially started thinking about was um, would have had to do with sort of these major shifts from orality to literacy, from presence to representation. And the, the sort of intuitive answer is that as a society becomes more reliant upon writing, they... They, they get nervous sort of over the implications of this. If, if we all start writing, basically, are we going to lose presence more or less and lose access to personal presence? And one good way to sort of cope with that kind of anxiety is to treat writing not as something opposed to presence, but as an extension of presence, of, of personal presence. And that answer kind of makes sense. And I don't necessarily think that answer is wrong, but it does rely on this idea of a big sort of transition that sort of as you move from orality to writing or from from personal presence to media that is representation, you're moving from one thing to something that's very different than it. And I wasn't sure that was going to be the best answer in some ways. I'm, I'm not a person who by nature in their scholarship looks for big shifts or anything like that. I tend to be more interested in micro history and small explanations. And so I started to think about why else might people be so vested in thinking about writing as presence. And the answer that I eventually came up to had to do with the cult of saints at Durham with their intense attachment to their patron saint cuthbert who of, of whose relics they possessed and of course relics are quite literally for for medieval thinkers the presence of the saint it, it em, literally embodies the continuing presence of the saint on earth to have the dead body of cuthbert is to have access to cuthbert himself even though um, he's now a transcendental figure uh, in heaven. The body still brings his presence right to you in a very concrete, very imminent way. And so relics are paradoxical in this way, simultaneously transcendent and imminent. And interestingly, that idea of sort of paradoxical transcendence and imminence gets extended to writing 
in the context of the cult of saints as well, when they begin to sort of make copies, make manuscript copies of the life of Cuthbert, a text that narrates sort of his life and deeds, um, they start to say, yeah, this text is kind of like a relic. It gives us access to Cuthbert's deeds, to his words, to his actions and things like this. And they don't mean it in a metaphorical sense. They think of it as, yes, by reading this text, we can literally become closer to the saint affectively, interiorly, not geographically, but literally closer to the saint. And as a result of this, sort of the notion of presence gets attached to the written word. And then as sort of an intuitive leap is expanded to the written word more generally, which doesn't bring you close to a saint, but brings you close to the author. And, and so the interesting thing about this argument is that it's, it's not some general shift from orality to writing or from presence to representation that's going on here. It's actually because a different culture of presence was so vital and continued to be so vital throughout the 12th century that writing kind of got sucked into the orbit of these ideas about personal presence, about textual authority. So what does this process tell us about the cultural significance of writing? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things I really try to emphasize in this article is that when a community that that hasn't had significant recourse to writing as a form of media begins to do so, um, when the written word becomes a more substantial part of their communicative strategies and part of their sort of cultural practice, it doesn't necessarily mean that they are abandoning previous modes of communication or previous attitudes about media or anything like that. It's very easy to think of the expansion of writing as something that's going to happen at the expense of personal charisma, um, oral communication, or something like that. At Durham, it actually turns out to be the opposite. They have this really vital culture of presence surrounding the cult of saints that has to do with sort of direct access to bodies, to persons, to authorities. And when writing appears on the scene, as it were, when, when writing becomes a more substantial part of their cultural life, that culture of presence doesn't get supplanted. It actually gets expanded. It becomes more vital, more differentiated for sure, but also a, a larger component of their cultural life. It, it becomes more diverse and bigger, for lack of a better word. And this, you know, th this is a worthwhile lesson today that when we think about, we, we very easily think about, you know, new forms of media as sort of uh, coming at the expense of old habits of thought, right? Twitter, oh, only 140 words, we, we can't you know, we can't sustain, we have short attention spans and all these things because of the forms of media we have. And I think a good counterpoint to, to those kinds of arguments is to be attentive to the ways in which new modes of media actually reinforce, develop, and expand well-entrenched habits of mind rather than, rather than supplanting them. Well, Professor Deal, thank you for taking the time to talk with me today. A pleasure. Well, that's it for this episode. I'm Glenn McDorman. You can find me and the Agnes Forum at claytemplemedia.com. And until next time, awe atque wale.